1,500 employees sounds like a lot of bodies. A lot. That's what she said. But are you effing kidding me? That's what she said. I don't recall anything of this magnitude ever. That's what she said. It's definitely still a very lumpy time. That's what she said. Yeah, spoiler alert, I just don't. <laughs> it's just messy. That's what she said. Gonna, I'm going to wait till the next time that you blow it again. That's what she said. Don't blow it again. Don't be that guy. That's what she said. <laughs> what a place to end it. That's what she said. Hey guys, welcome back to the Results Junkies podcast. Uh, I am back across the ocean sitting here in my basement and Paul is just mere miles away as we head into the hot and muggy days of summer in D.C. And Paul, I got to tell you, stepping off of the airplane and thinking of, of all the things I needed to catch up on as it related to where we stand right now, what like just just how how much things are you know, and you talked about this a bit in the pre-show, just how much things are pivoting from an IPO standpoint and areas where we're seeing shrinkage and rising interest rates. Like, it's just, it's a really murky picture right now. Uh, I don't want to give it away too much, but at the same time, you know, in the pre-show, you and I just did a quick review of our overlapping portfolio in terms of startup investing. And it's just an interest, it just paints an interesting picture, you know, when we talk about the stuff we're going to talk about today. So it's like, What's actually happening here? I'm not sure I know, but I, I have a feeling you have some thoughts. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm not trying to be like vague. I just don't want to like jump ahead yeah, of, you know, we, your story there. We both definitely have thoughts. You're, and you're right about where the, where the existing portfolio is. But I, so I think that the two things we want to cover today are we want to cover this tweet that you threw my way about an IPO coming up for SEM Rush. And then, uh, you know, we talked about this briefly on the show a couple weeks ago, but I, I want to, sort of dig into the numbers a little bit and talk a bit more about um, this situation with the the owner of these two large hotels in San Francisco that essentially walked away from the properties. So uh, a couple of big things to digest there. You can, uh, if you have questions or comments for us, you can shoot us an email, show at resultsjunkies.com. You can find him at social media at Paul Singh, and you can find me on social media at Pizza in Motion. So, uh, so SEM Rush. You know, in case folks aren't aware of what SEM Rush is, I'd say probably the best way I can describe it is that um, it's a it's a marketing tool that uh, a great number of companies are using. And I think maybe a little bit surprising to me is that it seems to have more large customers than I expected. Um, there, you know, there are obviously a number of free customers. They have a freemium model. There's a number of free customers, a number of paying customers. But I was surprised in the tweets that uh, that you shared from Jason about how many customers they have that are paying them, you know, over ten thousand dollars. I thought that was that was a little bit of a surprise for me, for starters. Yeah. Okay. So I definitely have some thoughts here, but why, where do you want to go with this? Because I uh, I don't want to take you off left field here. Yeah. So I would say let's. I, I want to hear your thoughts, and then I'm going to tell you my my because I didn't know a lot about SEM Rush's economics. I knew what SEM Rush was, but I didn't know about their economics until you sent me this this thread. So. Love to hear your thoughts on the deal, and then I'll share with you mine. Yeah, so I've got I would I would bucket my thoughts into two primary buckets. First is I agree with where you were headed right there, where you said like I didn't know they had so many big accounts. You know, I I, I definitely I I guess in my mind I thought of them as like a ninety nine dollar a month kind of thing. Right. But looking at some of the initial 
um, info that's coming out, it's like, wow, that customer mix is far more <laughs> enterprisey than I realized. Good for them. And we can talk more about that. But the second bucket of this is the timing. You know, here we are in the middle of 2023, right? It is 2023. Yeah. So middle of 2023. And I don't know offhand, I should have looked this up in the pre-show. I don't know who's actually invested in them. But the reality is that, look, here's the thing. The IPO window, I'm not sure is completely opened right now, considering some of the stuff happening in other asset classes, real estate, all that stuff. But, you know, you know, back in 2008, 2009, there were tech companies that were publicly saying they wanted to go public because they, you know, had a great thing, da, da, da. But behind the scenes, it was really just a function of the underlying institutional funds that had invested in them had reached the maturity of the fund. You know, so I don't know if we want to name names here or whatever, but the point is, is like this second bucket that I'm kind of referring to is, is the timing kind of just feels weird right now to, to go public when other asset classes are hurting so badly. We're not really sure what's happening with inflation, all these other things kind of makes me wonder if this is really more about institutional funds being at the end of their life cycle and the LP is not allowing it to continue on and, and just essentially forcing the liquidation to happen for the earlier investors. So that's probably not worded very well, but that's sort of my thoughts on in two buckets there. Yeah. And I, I looked back while you were talking and it looks like there were just a total of three investors and the the names are, um, I didn't know one of the names. Uh, so headline, Seguler Guff and Company is that one I know off the top of my head and then Graycroft. Now that's just off of Crunchbase. There could be more here that's just not in Crunchbase. Um, so, you know, take take that with a bit of a grain of salt. But this goes back to fundraise of 2018. You know, to your point about was this the end of the life for their funds? I mean, I guess it could be. It feels a touch early for that, but but still still could be the wind down phase. I think, I, I don't want to sound like a moron when I say this, but, uh, you know, like, I, so I look at the, the top line and it's like, you know, the, the and we'll, this tweet will be in the show notes, but, you know, Jason comments, you know, today SEMrush is quietly doing 290 million in ARR, uh, strong NRR, and that's net revenue retention for those that aren't familiar with the term. Um, I think it's net revenue retention, right? That's what it stands for. Mm -hmm. It's flow, yep. essentially flow through. Yep. Growing 24% with a $1.4 billion market cap. So I read through all that, and then I get to his, he said he's going to make five points. He ended up making six, but um, his fifth <laughs> point was. <laughs> Wait for it. They're only losing 10%. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, are you, are you, uh, sorry, and Jeremiah, I won't make you bleep it out, but are you effing kidding me? Like, this is a, they're $300 million a year and they're losing $30 million a year. So, that, so that, that's the thing, man. Like, I, the, I mean, here's the thing. I, and again, I, I, I'm armchair quarterbacking it. You mm -hmm. know, there's a bunch of people that are really smart working their hearts out at this company. I'm sure of it, but like all the things can't be true at the same time. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, I, I think there was a time where tech companies could come out onto the market and also be bleeding cash. And that was when interest rates were low and, and everybody was trying to just ride the train. And then there's today. And today doesn't feel like that. You know, I, I don't know. The, the, just the timing of this thing just feels weird. It just feels like 
you know, just, and again, I know we're both run, running on limited data here, you know, like according to Crunchbase, there's only three investors. Two of them are venture firms and one of them uh, looks like a PE firm. So just guessing here, but the venture firms probably came in early. The PE firms came in a little later. And the point is though, is that like the v the VCs are probably in the money no matter what, because they came in so early. Sure. And the PE firms probably just trying to, I don't know, I'm making this up, but you got to win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the thing, I mean, you know this better than I do, but the thing about going public is, is you don't really need to pay attention to what's in there. You kind of need to pay attention to what's not in there. It's kind of like what you just discovered there or said there, which is there's all these great tweets, all this great info. And then at the end, it's like, but they're only losing 10%. You're like, wait, 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 <laughs> What, what just happened here? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and like the numbers are interesting. So and I'll, I'll pull a couple things there. You can find these in the tweet thread if you're following along on, uh, you know, listening to us. But in 2022, they they talked about the fact that just shy of 50 percent, essentially 49.9 percent on this chart, 49.9 percent of their uh, expenses were in sales and marketing. And you know that number has grown over the past handful of years. Not every year, but from 2019 to 2022, it's gone up five percent. That sort of screams to me this, you know, ask app not to track um, sort of stuff that 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 has hurt them in some way, shape, or form. Because I don't think that could be all people that, you know, the notes say that they have fifteen hundred plus employees, and they divide up into three buckets on this long term operating model: sales and marketing, R and D, and general and administrative. I would say that the majority of the R&D and general and administrative buckets are probably humans. And then the sales and marketing is a mix of humans and you know money being spent to get people to sign up for the products. And I, I try to draw a correlation, and I understand this will not be a perfect correlation just because the numbers have moved around so much, but I think it's certainly relevant in terms of what everybody knows out there about Tesla. And so like the most recent numbers for Tesla is by the best reports that we can find online that they're like something like 1300 employees and that they're on track for something like $3 billion in revenue, which is down considerably. So I'll admit even before I looked up the numbers, just considering that 80%, I think was the number that they said 80% of, uh, maybe it was 88% of SEM Rush's customers are free customers. 1,500 employees sounds like a lot of bodies. A lot. Yep. My guess would be a good number of them are sales and marketing folks. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, the, the, the thing is, like, I'll just put you on the spot because I didn't ask you this in the pre-show. If, if, and again, I know we're armchair quarterbacking and there's a lot of people here that have probably worked their hearts out to make this company $290 million a year, right? So want to be respectful of all that. Yeah. But if you're an investor in this company, and let's just say you had enough interest or controlling interest to like at least maybe guide the board or say something, would you go public right now? I know it's a hard question because it's a really simple question for a very complex issue. Yeah, I think my 30 second thought on it would be if the IPO window was open, I would I would go public. Yes, because... I think two reasons. Well, it's it's 1A and 1B. I don't have any insight into how much money they have in the bank, for sure. I don't see, based on everything that we've heard and listening to folks talking with other investors, I don't see a company like this being able to raise money easily from late stage funds right now. Yeah. And I, and I also think that the IPO window is going to be tough to get through over the next few years while interest rates are high. 
So I think if it was available to me, yeah, I'd probably take it. So that's interesting. I, and, and I don't think it's wrong. I, you know, obviously it's, everybody's going to do their own thing. I, I think that, and this might be a topic for another show entirely at some point, but like, I, I think for anybody listening that is an LP or limited partner in other venture funds, particularly funds that are mm, five, seven, 10 years old, what I've noticed, at least in, in my own portfolio, is an increasing number of fund extension requests. So in other words, this is not the time to go public unless you need to go, unless you need to get liquid as a fund because the majority of your LPs want to get, get some cash back, you know, you're better off holding. So all other things being equal, which, you know, again, this is a very complex issue that none of us really know the inside details on. The fact is that like, unless the limited partners really need some liquidity or the GPs need to show a win there's really no good reason, particularly for the institutional VCs to go public right now, unless it's one of those two things, which again is not a, I'm not, I know I'm just guessing here, right? And, but I want to keep prefacing this by, I'm not saying anything bad about SEM Rush. I think it's super interesting that they built yeah. this amazing business. But I think for entrepreneurs listening to this, I think it's important to understand that the decisions that investors make are influenced usually by people that are not actually sitting around the table right there with you, the founder, right? So like, and again, I, I know my like info is maybe a little bit limited too, but again, at the same time, like I, as a small LP and a number of venture funds that people know about, I would just say that like right now I'm getting a lot of emails once a year, once a quarter that are like, Hey, fund number XXX or whatever is scheduled to, you know, uh, mature on this date, the management co is requesting a two year extension or a three year extension or whatever. And then they try to get a bunch of votes from the LPs. And there's just more and more of that coming across right now. So I don't know, this to me seems like a liquidity attempt by the investors is my bet. If I had to put money behind it, I bet you, and that's not a bad thing. It's just, it is what it is. Here's one other way to look at it. And I'm not, again, I, I agree. Like, I think I could defend your position quite well. I, I don't know if this is an easy one, but I, you know, just penciling in some numbers here. So in 2022, you know, their loss, their operating loss was 15%. Their non-gap net loss was 10%. Let's just use a smaller of those numbers at 10% just for a moment. I don't know enough about their bookkeeping to know which is the right number to use. But let's just say they lost 10%. So that means they lost something like 30 million bucks. They raised 40 in 2018. They lost 8% in 2019. I don't have these revenue numbers in front of me, to be clear. Lost 8% in 2019, lost 4% in 2020, essentially broke even in 2021. And now they're back to a double digit loss. This sounds like a company without a lot of cash. Um, and maybe the existing investors are willing to put in more. Hard to say. Like to your point, like some of this is reading tea leaves for us. But but I don't I don't think they have a ton of cash on hand. Would be my guess. You're yeah. You're probably right. I mean, they're again. We're just guessing. You know. Yeah. Pro, uh, disclaimer. 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 But at the same time, really, for a company like that right now, there's only three choices. One, you riff or lay off and and kind of get right. Option two, you ask your existing investors for money. Option three, you try to bring in new investors. Reality is nobody really wants the optics of a riff or a layoff. For option two, the reality is your existing investors are probably already tapped out. 
you know, it's, it's going to be a hard ask for them to get the LPs to approve a bigger investment into an existing portfolio company unless there's a lot of upside left. And option three is limited as well. You know, bringing in new investors at the valuation that's probably required to, to get sign-off, probably not going to happen either. IPO is probably the least worst path right now and good for them for like getting there. But, right. you know, founders beware. And the reason I even touch on that topic, by the way, is just related to what you and I just talked about in the pre-show. When we kind of went through our existing portfolio a couple of years ago, if somebody said to me, hey, we're sitting on 30 months of runway, we'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, that's not what we funded you for. <laughs> but now we're looking at our portfolio and we're like, oh, that's really prudent. That's nice. Yes. Congratulations. Great job. Okay. I know I'm not going to mark that up on paper, but really I should. <laughs> <laughs> so I think now more than ever, now more than ever, founders should be really acting as if they're not going to be able to raise more money. And I know we always say that everybody says that, but like, it's more serious than ever. <laughs> yeah. Good for these guys for going public. And who knew those guys had 300 million in ARR? That's, that's amazing. It's incredible. Great. <laughs> that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. 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 We, we, yeah to, to Paul's point earlier about not trying to judge the company, like, you know, being able to build a $300 million gross revenue business in this sort of a vertical is, that's, that's impressive for sure. Yeah. Good for them. Like, I had no idea, by the way. Again, like I said, I thought they were like, and no offense to anybody that works there. I thought they were like a $99 a month thing, you know, maybe doing 10, 20, 50 million. I had no idea, right? Right, right. <laughs> and then you start to see these like these numbers and you're like, what in the world? Good for them. So let's, um, before we run out of time, let's talk a bit about this thing I'm obsessed with in San Francisco. And, you know, from a number standpoint, it, to Paul's point earlier, to some degree, we you know we don't have the entire story, although a lot of the story is public here. High level, I think everybody knows that San Francisco has been going through a rough time. There are a number of things in play here. You know, part of it is you know people leaving California because of taxes. Part of it is the pandemic and companies that shut down that were strongholds in San Francisco. There's a crime element on the streets that makes it less desirable to be there. There's less convention business, and San Francisco was a big convention city. But with all that being said, essentially, this very large REIT or real estate investment trust has two large hotels that are part of the Hilton family that they essentially handed the keys back to the bank on, which in this case is J.P. Morgan now because J.P. Morgan took First Republic over who originally had the note. And just to put things in perspective, uh, according to reports, the, um, the property was last refinanced in 2016. So we're talking seven years ago. And at that point, the portfolio was estimated at $1.56 billion. They took out $725 million in financing, so about half of the value of the property, a little less than half the value of the property. That was almost 10 years ago. I don't know if it was interest only. I, I dug around a bit. I couldn't find any sort of gleanings on, was this 10-year paper, 30-year paper, interest only. Suffice to say, probably quite a bit of the $725 million principal balance is still owed. But the owner felt strongly enough about the negative trend in, in San Francisco to walk away from this property. And so what we're, what we're saying a couple things here. One, that they don't believe they have the revenue to support it going forward. But two, I mean, this property that at one point was valued by the banks at $1.56 billion can't be valued at even half that now or they wouldn't walk away. It has to be valued at probably a third of that or less. And... It makes you wonder as 
and I was trying to find these numbers. And if I can find the article and, and, and put it in the show notes, I will. But the New York Times had published an article about which cities were losing the most residents over the past handful of years. And we've talked about this, the state of work today and, and the whether we're moving more towards work from home or away from it. Very clearly in San Francisco right now, whether it's convention or traditional office worker, it's just not there in what was you know, a major market for a lot of our portfolio companies for the past 20 years. I don't want to like get into you know, making broad comments about San Francisco, but I think, you know, you don't have to look far in the news to just see what's happened to a lot of places, you know, in terms of the downtown sectors and stuff like that. But, but here's the thing. First off, you don't make a decision like this. You know, uh, I think you said the initial value is probably at some point $1.5 billion for the asset. The first thing I would say about this is, is that these sort of decisions from a fiduciary duty and safe harbor kind of standpoint were not made unilaterally. Like some CEO or CFO somewhere could not make a decision like this uh, without a lot of risk to themselves unless they actually put this to a vote with their board, probably their capital partners and stuff like that. So I guess what I'm saying is first thing first, it's not that any one person at that company thinks it's worth giving that asset back. It's a lot of people through the organization that have a lot of fiduciary duty responsibilities saying, we collectively agree or the majority of us agree that we need to give this back. So that's the first thing I would say is like, this is not like the whim of one C-level person. This is bigger than that. But the second thing is this sort of speaks to loosely kind of speaks and ties itself back to this other thing we just talked about, like the IPO window. Like I really don't think you can have an IPO window open for tech companies when a major asset class like real estate potentially has this on the horizon. Like in other words, this is really unheard of. I mean, you probably can speak to this better than me, but like... I don't recall anything of this magnitude ever. Exactly. It's one thing to default on your car, as unfortunate as that is, because that's a depreciating asset anyway. This is something else entirely. This is generally an appreciating asset, depending on what time frame you're, you're, you're thinking about. And for somebody to walk away from something like this, you know, it really opens the question of how many more of these are on the horizons. But I, again, I think it's, I think it's unprecedented. And I think that all this stuff's all tied together. Like if real estate people are getting nervous about commercial assets, uh, at some point, people need to understand there's a large overlap in the LP markets, I think, for venture firms. Th these are the same people, <laughs> or at least the Venn diagram is very, very overlapping, I would say. Uh, yes, you're exactly right. There has to be a significant overlap in in these buckets. And I think I think you bring up a solid point just in general about, about the confusing nature of where we are from a financial standpoint and what the IPO window should look like. Um, and there's probably not direct correlations to these two buildings in any way, shape, or form. But to your point, I mean, people have to put their money somewhere. I, I also think there's an interesting piece here in that if we think about this for a second, and we talked, you know, you and I talked a bit about banks probably about eight, 10 episodes ago when you were talking about a line of credit for the company that we now know the name of, Strata, <laughs> and, you know, what the bank's motivations were and things like that. Like, certainly this issue could be clouded by the fact that J.P. Morgan Chase is in the process of taking over First Republic Bank. But we also have to think about this from the standpoint of at the point at which that this REIT doesn't want to pay the bill anymore in this building, there likely have been substantial discussions with the bank. And... If the bank doesn't want to run these hotels or thinks that the value has plummeted, then there's a reasonable chance the bank would refinance because they don't want to hold the keys to a dead asset. What is interesting to me here, and this story has a few weeks on it now, this was first reported 
you know, back at the the beginning of June. So, I mean, I haven't seen new developments. It's been a month. These things can take some time, but I, I, I think we would have seen something if a refi had happened. It is interesting to me that there hasn't been a refi because if things were really this bad, why wouldn't JP Morgan still want to take some sort of a payment from the REIT just to not have to deal with the mess? Because at now, I mean, like if the if the REIT really does hand the keys back, they have a $750 million debt that's not paid. And oh, by the way, they own two hotels in a very crappy market. Yeah. So there's, there's interesting pieces here that I, I can't quite say I, I understand that, that again, contribute to this picture of very uncertain economic times. The article quotes the fact that occupancy rates are still down over 20% from pre-pandemic in San Francisco, which quite frankly, when I think about it, would have killed one of the companies that we had an investment in that did travel-related services. They ultimately ended up getting sold during the pandemic, but I, I don't. I, they couldn't survive those sorts of numbers. They needed business travel. Right. And this clearly still indicates that, that at least in, in San Francisco, business travel has, has not fully recovered. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, like, I bet you probably can speak to this better than I can, just given your involvement with that. Um, I don't know if you guys want to say the name, but the, the bank in Vegas. And, um, you know, the, the thing about it is that, like, there's probably something also here with the... Uh, I don't know what the right term is, but like, it's one thing if, so when you underwrite that loan, you probably can speak to this better than I can, but when you underwrite that loan, you know what the asset value is. And, and then you've, you, you basically like, t- you've given a loan based on that. And you probably have something built into your model that says, if the underlying value swings by 10, 20% or whatever, we're okay. But if the underlying assets value drops precipitously, I wouldn't be surprised, especially at these big numbers if there isn't a clause in there that allows you to then force the 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 loan terms to change right like if you if you underwrote a loan on a 1.5 billion dollar property that is now not worth 1.5 i imagine there's also some part in there or some point in the document that allows the bank to say hey you know the uh the loan to asset ratio here is way out of whack it's time to change all this and now all of a sudden that forces the conversation, you know, with, you know, Hilton or whoever that says, oh, can we actually make this payment? I don't know. Maybe that's a bigger conversation for a different episode. But the point of all this is, is that like, back to this other thing, you can't, I just find it hard to think about companies going public right now, while another really big asset class is also potentially facing some headwinds. I mean, I just, Look, I mean, look, think about 2008, and I know it's not totally the same, but at the same time, like, given the choice, people would not have let their homes get foreclosed. They would have, like, stayed in them because over the long, a longer period of time, maybe things would have gotten right again, right? But, like, they had to leave and because the numbers didn't work and the bank wanted to own it. Like, all, nobody walks away from an asset like that unless the numbers really don't have any hope or the bank just says, give it to me. <laughs> and... um it just makes you wonder, like, are there five more of these coming? Are there 50 more? Are there a thousand more? And to your point, you know, how much of this impacts the IPO window, late stage funding? Like, I would argue that REIT investing is a lot more akin to folks who are in late stage funding than folks who are angel investors, just given the size and breadth of the scope. Well, yeah. And not to like, you know, air my laundry here, but look, I, over the years, as I get a little older now, I'm sort of readjusting my portfolio. And, you know, with the IPO window, like, I'm just like any other investor in the sense that I only get my money out if you go public or if there's a, some sort of M&A activity. And the reality is, is that 
for your winners in your portfolio right now, IPO window is generally closed and re, re like interesting M&A window is generally closed. Like, yeah, there's early stage acquisitions happening and don't get me wrong, like for a founder to make a 20 or $30 million exit, that's life-changing. Absolutely. But in sure. companies that I've been tied up in for three, five, seven, ten 10 years, they're only out at this point is these larger transactions and those aren't happening. And for me as an angel, that really changes my own allocation. You know, like it's harder for me right now to be aggressive about investing in, I don't know, the next 200 companies or whatever, when I know that I, when I don't know what my returns are going to look like over the next year. So maybe that's a different episode entirely, but that's the thing. I mean, for founders listening to this, I don't know. I mean, you've probably noticed this too, Ed. It seems like everybody's coming back for a bridge round. Almost everybody's coming back at the same value that they had a year ago, maybe even two years ago now. And I get why they're doing it. And in, if you just isolate each deal, you understand like why they're doing it. It's because everybody's telling them to do it. Like, oh, just, just get a bridge, do it at the same price, whatever. But the reality is, is when you're sitting on my side of the table and your side of the table and you see five of these a day, 10 of these a day, 20 of these a day, and you're like, wait, 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 which one of these is really a bridge to the future? Because they can't all be right. They can't all be true. And maybe that's where we like have to pin this, this one and, and get it next time if people want to know about is that like, I just think there's something bigger happening here in the market that I don't know how to predict, but I think founders here really, really, really need to operate as if there's no more money coming, at least for the next year or two. And for the investors, maybe we all need to have like a little powwow over dinner and commiserate on the fact that all of our investments are probably locked up for another year or two. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just don't see, you know, where this is coming out. Uh, anyway, again, separate episode, maybe at some point if people want to know about Show it results, junkies, and uh, if, if enough people respond, maybe we'll just share some numbers. But I've got some companies where I'm like, can you please go public? Because that would uh, be amazing, <laughs> you know, but, but I understand why they can't. And instead, I'm just approving the fund extensions because I'm like, what else can we do, right? Like, right. you know, if that's going to be the winner for that particular fund, let's just max it out. Yeah. No, it's, so, it, it's definitely still a very lumpy time. That's what she said. <laughs> what a place to end it. <laughs> Uh, uh, all right. So you're back from Hawaii. Knowing you, you're probably already like threw your bags into the laundry. You've repacked them and you're about to go back to the airport. But where, where are you headed next? I don't have another trip scheduled for like three days. So <laughs> Three days. <laughs> it's crazy. I love that. Yeah. I love I got, that. I got a bunch of Vegas. I got a couple of Vegas trips for work. Got Nova Scotia to visit family. Taking Charlie to Denmark. Back down to Orlando for Disney World. We got a bunch of stuff. How about you? Uh, nothing crazy this month. You know, we're probably going to do Hilton Head, South Carolina next month or the month after. I don't know what month we're in now. Actually, next month. This month is really just camps for the kids and stuff like that. But a lot of stuff with Strata coming down the pipe. I'll save it for another episode. But lots of content. We're, um, we're launching a bunch of new shows and it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. I'm, I'm definitely getting my gray hairs. This is, uh, this is all gray <laughs> here from last week. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one day I'll figure out how you keep it all together and uh, I'll learn. We'll see. Yeah, spoiler alert, I just don't. It's just messy. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going to... I gave you a window. I thought that's where you're going to say, this is where a new Apple laptop really can help. But you didn't, oh, so... No, because you can't, you can't, because you can't earn 10 miles per dollar right now. So, so now I'm just going to, I'm going to wait till the next time that you blow it again. Well, Don't I, blow it again. Don't be that guy. Ah. Uh, 
you know, I, well, okay. Separate episode. Oh, we'll talk about this, but like, I'm really trying to be, I'm trying to like, like hit a couple of targets on, like, I don't want to get another one just to get one. Anyway, separate topic. Oh, We're God. not going to restart the episode here. <laughs> Let's just leave it right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good place to leave it. Uh. All right. All right, my man. Well, good seeing you as always. I'm glad you're back in the same time zone for a grand total of three days. Happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah.